The Blunt Post with Vic. Good morning, happy Monday, and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jarami, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national, regional, and local headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress, local elected officials, and other high-profile public figures. Kevin DeLeon has spent his life as an educator, activist, and a community organizer. He was the first Latino leader of the California State Senate in 130 years and represents the 14th District as a Los Angeles City Council member. Tackling the unhoused and affordable housing are his top priorities as he runs for L.A. mayor in 2022. So, Councilmember DeLeon, thank you for uh, speaking with me about um, so much that's happening and you're in the middle of it. you are a council member for the 14th district. Yes. Uh, it's a very large district and very diverse. You've been a state senator prior to that, and now you're running for LA mayor, uh, which is one of the largest economies in the world, just LA itself. Let me just first ask you, why do you want to do that? Oh, first, Vic, I want to say, but if, you know, but thank, you, you know thank you very much for the invitation. I'm honored to be here. And if there is, if, if we've learned anything the past year and a half of isolation, turmoil, and uncertainty as we continue to fight the coronavirus, is that we simply cannot go back to the old normal. All you have to do is look at homeless encampments in almost every neighborhood in Los Angeles, expend essential workers, treated like expendable workers, um, the sense of panic and anxiety uh, for rent relief. Uh, the fact that we have so many Angelinos standing in blocks waiting to pick up a box of food just to feed their children, or another fact that the only thing that's standing between Angelinos keeping a roof over their head and living out on the streets is an eviction moratorium. Mm -hmm. So it's time that we chart a a new course for our city uh, to speak truth to power. Um, I think that we're at an inflection point. And who leads the city the next four to eight years uh, will define the future of the city uh, for decades to come. That means the good, the bad, or the ugly. So you need the right leadership during a moment of great crisis, great tumult. Mm-hmm. We've dealt with earth, earthquakes. We've dealt with wildfires. We've dealt with um, civil unrest, uh, severe economic recessions. But we've never dealt with a global pandemic that has brought us to our knees economically. So, so much unemployment. Uh, underemployment, a sense of anxiety, am I going to be able to pay the rent, put food on the table, close my back of the children, you know, and that's why we're at a very momentous period uh, in, in global history. You're right, LA is one of the world's greatest cities, but with severe challenges, the largest homeless population in the United States of America, more than 41,000 in the city of LA, and I have the majority or the plurality of those 41,000. If LA is if LA is the epicenter of a homelessness nationwide, then the district I represent is ground zero. And that leaves us with an, an, a profound, indelible mark of shame. Right. You, you packed a lot in there, a lot of different things I want to ask you. So I'll start with this one. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's kind of a two-mark question. One of them is, with this pandemic still continuing, as we see, and the fallout from it is going to be uh, 
present for a while, even after the pandemic is under control, um, especially financial um, fallout from that. What do you, the first part of the question is, what do you foresee as some of the, the major occurrences that could happen in the next, let's say, five years that will require uh, great leadership? Now, of course, we can't, uh, we can't predict earthquakes or sure. floods or this and that, but the economy is cyclical. You know, we can sort of look at all the major issues that are happening now and we can predict, or not predict, but at least foresee that if not taken care of the right way, it will lead to something more disastrous. And the second part of it is Americans are kind of tired of politicians that talk about sound bites and rhetoric yeah. and such. They want hands-on leadership that really gets it done. Uh, I think a lot of people feel that about you. So considering the first part of what do you foresee as the biggest challenges in the next five years, and how do you see yourself as someone uh, different than your than the other candidates in handling these things that could come up? Well, let me take the the latter question, and I'll try to answer to the best of my ability. I think that, like I said a few moments ago, we're at an inflection point in, in our city's history, uh, given the, the severe impact of the coronavirus, und underemployment, unemployment, um, a sense of um, deep uncertainty, deep doubt, anxiety, and panic. So I think Angelinos want real leadership. Um, I've had the honor uh, to be the leader of, of our California State Senate, the first person of color um, in the state's history uh, to lead this uh, August uh, uh, legislative body. And when I was there, I spoke truth to power. You know, I, I fought against Wall Street and I created the first financial product uh, uh, for retirement security, the greatest expansion of retirement security since the creation of Social Security, my program, which is the CalSavers program. That means all employees who have no access to defined benefit, defined contribution at their place of employment will be automatically enrolled and automatic payroll deduction. I spoke truth to power when I took on the National Rifle Association uh, and I regulated uh, handgun ammunition. And the reason why I regulate handgun ammunition is that when you really think about it, ammunition is the, is the oxygen that fuels the deaths you know, in our communities, in our neighborhoods. And no one regulates. Well, you have to, you know, obviously do a background check in California for a handgun, a long gun, but there's no background checks at all whatsoever for the actual, the fuel, the oxygen, which is the ammunition. You know, I took on, you know, the, the fossil fuel industry, big oil, uh, when they made California the largest state, the largest economy in the world to legally dedicate itself to 100% clean, renewable, zero carbon energy. In effect, decarbonizing our grid, you know, retail sales of electricity, whether it's to investor-owned utilities like a San Diego Gas and Electric, Southern California Edison, or PG&E, or municipally, publicly-owned utility like the nation's largest, LA, DWP, or Sacramento, SMUT. So we're on a pathway to decarbonizing, you know, our electrical grid system. You know, I, I spoke truth to power. Uh, again, when I, I took on big oil, when I took on the NRA, when I took on uh, Wall Street, and that's those are driven by my values and who I am and how I grew up as the youngest child, a single immigrant mother with a third grade education. Now, I'm taking on a gargantuan challenge right now, and I'm not waiting to become the mayor. Uh, I'm acting right now 
which is the issue of homelessness. It's the greatest humanitarian crisis in our lifetimes. Men, women, single mothers with children living, you know, in the wealthiest city, you know, one of the wealthiest cities in the entire world to be living on our streets That was going to be my next topic. Yeah, well, but I'll hold it right there. No, I'm, no, I appreciate it. It's a good, it's a segue. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you are listening to my interview with council member Kevin DeLeon, who is also running to be the next LA mayor in 2022. First, I want to, you know, make it clear that I think we most of us know that homelessness is not an, just an LA problem. It's not a California problem, and it can't be solved just in LA, just in California. Um, despite that, some people think that uh, any mayor can just turn on a switch yeah. and they're all gone, or or uh, even if there was unlimited amount of money to build, uh, you know, thousands of housing, uh, we will still have homelessness challenge. I should say, not a problem. And I should probably not call it homelessness, but unhoused. So that's my bad. But um, it, it's 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 a very overwhelming issue. Um, how do you think that you would start tackling this? You already are tackling it, and you've done some great things, uh, including the the um, uh, the tiny homes and yes, such. Yeah. But uh, you know, as a mayor, you're sort of going to have a lot more pressure on you. To tackle the unhoused, yeah. and what what's your plan? Well, uh, my plan is very simple, and it's very straightforward. It's it's not complex. The issue of homelessness is profoundly complex, but a solution to homelessness is not, which is housing. You put a roof over someone's head, and that comes in various various manifestations. Whether it's short-term interim housing like tiny homes whether it's a program room key hotels and motels or transition to permanent housing whether it's the construction of new apartment buildings uh, whether it's adaptive reuse purchasing old buildings commercial properties and converting them into housing units or whether it's taking advantage of tens of thousands of vacancies that we have in LA in the region in renting those apartments for unhoused neighbors so we don't have to deal with capital costs we don't have to deal with all the construction delays and all the financing the stacked blended financing that takes years to put a deal together so we can move with a sense of urgency and immediacy listen the issue of homelessness we're dealing with profound macroeconomic policy uh, inequities that is built into our economic systems mm-hmm. we're dealing with institutional racism that's been with us for decades, if not centuries. We're dealing with severe mental illnesses, whether it's bipolarness or schizophrenia, whether it is innate within our family or whether it is induced by trauma, Mm -hmm. a sexual assault of some sort. Now, unless a pharmaceutical company is gonna come up, you know, with a pill that eliminates uh, uh, schizophrenia overnight, then we know that mental illnesses or with us to stay, whether it's through medical treatment, you know, uh, and uh, psychotherapeutic, you know, uh, uh, services. And then the issue of drug addictions too, which is very different from crack cocaine or from heroin, because the crystal meth that's on the street today with fentanyl is is, as potent as any drug that has been sold illicitly on our streets in LA and elsewhere. So we have the Drug Enforcement Administration, DEA, you have the FBI, 
You have alcohol, tobacco, firearms. You have U.S. Marshals, Customs and Border Protection. You have almost every law enforcement agency imaginable with tens of billions of dollars that have already been invested. And cumulatively, they've actually proven to be ineffective in curtailing the illicit flow of drugs into the United States due to our voracious appetite on our side of the border for drugs. Therefore, the point I want to make is drug use and drug addictions will be with us for the foreseeable future. What is within our control is the issue of housing. How can we stop the hemorrhaging immediately and bring folks out of the streets, off the streets, and into housing? And whichever manifestation that housing looks like, whether it's short-term, permanent, we know we have a lack of inventory. So, you know, we have huge, profound you know, societal issues. And you're absolutely right. This is not one individual's responsibility. It's not a mayor or council member, county board supervisor, state legislative bodies, governor. You know, it is all of ours problem. Mm -hmm. It is the president of the United States. It is the members of Congress and the U.S. Senate. It is every single elected official at every level. Mm -hmm. And we need to move heaven and earth. We need to move with a sense of urgency. Because I tell you one thing, we can do so when, when we build football stadiums. Right. We can do so when we build basketball arenas. We can do so when we build skyscrapers into the clouds. I was going to say when we are, when we are, when any nation is rapidly trying to build the stadiums, if they're the host of the Olympics, yeah. which we are. In 2028. We have the, we yeah. have the, uh, the venues. We're very well suited to host it. But for that, we have some work to do. Yeah, that without a doubt. A, so a, that's why urgency. we need to move heaven and earth because all of a sudden when it comes to housing for unhoused neighbors, the, the progress, the, the machine of progress grinds to a screeching halt all of a sudden. And then as a result, you're dealing with unhoused individuals. Listen, you're right. As long as we have drug addictions, severe mental illnesses, inequities, that are caked into our economic systems, a whole variety of issues. We're always going to have a number of unhoused individuals, but it doesn't have to be the way it is today. <laughs> 41,000 in the streets of LA, 60, 66,000 countywide. My district is ground zero. I have more unhoused individuals in my district than any other metropolitan city in America, except for three cities, New York, Los Angeles in the aggregate, mm -hmm. and Chicago. Mm -hmm. So I have more unhoused individuals than the cities of Houston and Phoenix, the fourth and fifth largest cities in America. So that gives you the scale and the magnitude. So just this year alone in 2021, we've housed more individuals than any place, than anyone just in the city of LA alone. I'm gonna take a risk saying this, but it may be possible that we've housed more individuals than any elected official in the country has. Um, and uh, we're, we're going at, at a rapid pace right now. So um, some folks do want to wait for the perfect, which is permanent housing. Um, and some of them are my friends, um, activists, but I don't agree at all whatsoever because I think you need both interim and permanent. If we can get them off the streets sooner rather than later, a tiny home that has a bed, that has a heater, as well as air conditioning, has a locked door for your own privacy, has windows, you have showers, 
you have uh, uh, bathrooms, you have uh, washers, and you have dryers. And you can go as you please. It's a lot better than sleeping on a cold slab of cement in yeah. concrete. Sometimes some of our, our friends romanticize, you know, the plight of our unhoused individuals and believe they should stay there until we have the perfect. That's criminal in that sense. And that's why I have to push back on some of my friends as well, too, and say that's not a smart way of thinking. Because unlike very polemic, controversial issues, say immigration, some folks say I'm for immigration reform, which I am, which we all are. Some other folks will say I'm for building the wall. Mm -hmm. Some other folks will say uh, I'm for climate change policies and regulations, reduce our greenhouse gases, CO2 and CO2 carbon dioxide equivalent, NOx, SOx, particular matter, 2.5, ozone. Some other folks will say climate change is a hoax. Right. Some folks will say I believe that we must recognize, as we all do, the genocide against the Armenian people that caused the worldwide diaspora. Others will say that the genocide never took place. So you have very polarizing perspectives. Yeah. But on the issue of homelessness, whether you're on the left or the right or points in between, right. everyone agrees that we must deal with this crisis. They Absolutely. may be driven from different perspectives, right? Right. But they all want the same thing. Right. Get them off the streets, house them sooner rather than later. Absolutely. Well, that was that was a really good explanation. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you are listening to my interview with council member Kevin DeLeon, who is also running to be the next L.A. mayor in 2022. You brought up the Armenian genocide. So I want to ask you, you've been a great uh, friend and a supporter to the Armenian community of a lot of Armenians in your district. Your record is very... Um, outstanding and clear to all of us. I think sometimes we, we want to hear, especially from non-Armenians, what is your perspective as to what happened last year with the attack from uh, Azerbaijan and Turkey on the Armenians of Artsakh? Well, I had the, the honor and the good fortune when I was a leader of our, Cal our California State Senate to I believe at the time to be the first uh, official um, at least in California, the highest-ranking official to uh, publicly recognize uh, Artsakh. And um, it was a lot of controversy as a result of my decision. Um, I saw a lot of uh, global press. Um, some of it was positive. A lot of it was also highly negative, driven by certain political uh, interest. Um, uh, I believe that uh, Artsakh and uh, what has happened in the past year with the violent encroachment uh, from the Azerbaijanis is a profound violation of the human civil rights of the Armenian people uh, in Artsakh. Um, uh, obviously, it, it made me very sad that we lost, you know, 5,000 young boys, young men, uh, um, men, um, thousands more who've been maimed. Mm -hmm. uh, we have our POWs. Uh, right now, prisons of war, uh, they're being held captive. Uh, just recently, there was more violent encroachment, you know, uh, 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 in Artsakh, um, clearly and sadly, and I won't, you know, involve myself in the internal politics of, of Armenia, but um, Armenia's um, military uh, prowess uh, 
was uh, they were outmatched, you know, uh, because the Turks obviously uh, funded greatly um, uh, the Azerbaijanis as well as other countries. Uh, the Russians played a, an interesting role, yeah. you know, a friend to all, and then you wonder where you know, uh, friend this, to none. Uh, yeah, friend where to do you stand, you know, exactly, in terms of facilitating, you know, peace, you know, in the region. Um, so it, it, it left us and a lot of we have the largest Armenian community uh, in the world, outside of uh, Yerevan, you know, in Armenia, and whether you're from Iranian. Uh, whether you're from Iran, I should say, um, whether you're from Damascus in Syria, whether you're from Beirut, uh, Lebanon, whether you um, are lived in the former Soviet Union, you know, before Armenia became independent, you know, country that it is, uh, we are home to the largest diaspora globally, and Armenians have played such a huge role um, as entrepreneurs, as academics as cultural artists, as politicians, as poets, um, as journalists, um, documentarians, you know, um, played a huge role in the vitality of a great city like Los Angeles and our region and a great city like California. So that's why the profound respect and the bond that I have is so sacred with the Armenian community. I, I was proud, you know, when you drive down the famous Hollywood 101 freeway and, you know, you're nearing East Hollywood, you know, uh, you see that sign that says Little Armenia, next oh, exit, yeah. you know, you're going north, south. I was proud to, yeah. to, to put that sign there. and. And obviously recognize Artsakh and that yeah. reckon, and also recognize and appoint, you know, six you know Armenian Americans to state board commissions when I was the leader of the California State Senate and and had the honor, the, the profound honor to have an opportunity to meet uh, the world famous um, musician you know, Charles Aznavour, you know, and 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 give him a Hollywood star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, you know, in Hollywood. And to have lunch with him and his son, Nicolas, before he passed away was profoundly, profoundly um, uh, a moving experience. And such a humble man, yeah. you know, when I met him. And I was in awe and so elegant and yeah. so dignified, you know. And obviously when he passed and may he rest in peace, uh, the fact that Macron had a, a state funeral for him and all of France, his eyes were in Paris, you know, for a man who deserved it because of the contributions he gave, not just to the French people, you know, or to Europeans, but to a global audience was stunning. And let me say, this is funny because when I had lunch with Charles and in San Nicolas, um, and we're talking, and he says to me that he was in the process of doing a, a duet with another amazing uh, a Mexican composer and singer, Juan Gabriel. And Juan Gabriel had uh, passed away, you know, tragically. So, you know, um, he was lamenting how they never got to do their duo never, together. Yeah. And it was sad. And I think they were talking about maybe through a hologram or something that how they could do it together. But he knew Juan Gabriel very well. And these two amazing, you know, global iconic, you know, stars, you know, uh, to music, you know, coming together, the, the Latino and the Armenian, French Armenian coming together. And who would have known, you know, that our world is, is so much smaller. Yes, absolutely. A lot of common commonality, 
Uh, more commonalities and differences. Is there anything I didn't ask you that I should have asked you or anything you'd like to add? No, I think that, you know, um, we're at an inflection point, you know, in, in our city's history. Uh, we've had earthquakes. We've had wildfires. We've had severe economic recessions. We've had civil unrest. But we've never experienced in our lifetimes a global pandemic that has brought us to our knees economically. Um, uh, my district at one time was ground zero for infections and mortality rates. Families living multi-generations under one roof, under very dense conditions. Um, essential workers treated like expendable workers. Frontline workers relegated to the back of the line for life-saving vaccinations. The inequities in terms of how we distributed life-saving vaccinations was very evident too even during this global pandemic, that you'd think that we'd be much more prepared. So we have to be prepared for the next global pandemic. We have to get vaccinated. And um, I know that when it comes to Moderna, I think, you know, uh, the uh, scientist, you know, who created the vaccination for Moderna, I believe if I'm correct, you know, is Armenian, you know? And Yubara, Yes, yeah. 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 And um, she just shows you the world is much more smaller. Um, this is a city that's amazing city, uh, Persians. And not just Persians in Iran, but you know Iranians who may not be Persians, uh, uh, Armenians, Lebanese, uh, Jewish, Mexican, Koreans, Chinese, African Americans, Midwesterners, and New Yorkers from the East Coast seeking better life, better bagels, better pastrami sandwiches, coming out to the West Coast. Pot. Yes, this is who we are—an amazing, you know, tapestry, a beautiful mosaic. But we have a lot of work before us. We have a lot. And LGBTQ, which I know you're very supportive of. Absolutely. Uh, you always have been. Obviously, you know I'm a gay man, and I, I just want to no, make it really? clear to. No, really. I didn't know that. You know, so, <laughs> what oh. gave it away? Yeah. No, I just want to. I, I think the first time we met. Put yeah, it out there that yeah. uh, you know we we do appreciate your support uh, as LGBTQ community as well, and we're with you in this Thank you. next. Thank you so much. What. Next, uh, this 10 journey months. into into the primary and then into yeah. the general after that. But the LGBTQI plus community has been very amazing. I've had the opportunity to work with some amazing folks. I I appointed um, the first gay Latino out to be the chair of the Appropriations Committee nice. of the Senate. That's Ricardo Lara, who's now our oh, insurance nice. commissioner for California. Um, I appointed. Uh, a gay man to be the chair of the budget committee of the Senate, and that's no other than Mark Leno from San Francisco. So the two individuals who are in charge of the purse strings, you know, were two gay men. You know, uh, Mark Leno from Very San Francisco cool. and Ricardo Lara, you know, from here, uh, uh, from Los Angeles. And uh, I had the honor um, when I left the California State Senate due to term limits um, that uh, I uh, supported strongly and made sure that my successor uh, would be uh, a member of the LGBTQIA plus community. That's one of our very own Tony Atkins from San Diego, an out lesbian woman who I love dearly, who is my successor, who leads the California Senate today. You know, How so, cool is that? You know, we can't beat that. Yeah, it's about well, taking big, bold actions, That's awesome. you know, our ideas, and turning them into action. That's awesome. Council member, thank you. Merci. That was my interview with uh, LA Council member Kevin DeLeon from uh, the 14th District, who is also running to be LA's next mayor. Uh, Council member DeLeon is truly one of the 
exceptional elected officials who is, or at least one can say, is an activist and really is out there working for the people. And uh, next year we get to um, have him uh, as candidate for LA mayor. Uh, Councilmember De Leon, thank you very much for the interview, and I hope to chat with you again soon. The Blunt Post with Vic. Councilmember Paul Coretz has represented Los Angeles's 5th District since 2009. Born in the San Fernando Valley, Councilmember Coretz helped lead the effort to incorporate the new city of West Hollywood in 1984. In 2000, he was elected to the California State Assembly representing the 42nd Assembly District that included much of City of LA's 5th District. While serving in the State Assembly, he authored over 70 bills to protect workers and their families, fought for LGBTQ equality, and the recognition of the Armenian Genocide. Councilmember Koretz is running to be the next Los Angeles City Controller, which will be decided in 2022. His endorsements are way too many to list, but a few include the Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti, Unite Here Local 11 Hospitality Workers Union, AIDS PAC, Councilmember Kevin DeLeon, and the iconic labor leader and human rights activist Dolores Huerta. Councilmember, thank you for speaking with me, taking part um, in this interview during a very pivotal time for, I want to say Los Angeles, but uh, I think it seems like the world is a little bit on edge right now. You have been a council member in Los Angeles for over 12 years uh, of a very pivotal uh, district, which has even expanded uh, recently. Um, in this sort of what a few months ago we thought it was going to be a transitioning or post-pandemic, but it's still a pandemic era for Los Angeles, one of the largest economies in the world. Um, where so much is changing, what is your perspective in general about uh, what is happening in Los Angeles? Well, it's, it's been a tough time. Obviously, uh, COVID has been a, a difficult crisis and we haven't been able to get a high enough percentage of uh, the population vaccinated quickly enough to, to uh, reach any kind of herd immunity and, and eliminate it. So, it seems like our ongoing push has to be to get everybody vaccinated, eventually given the booster shot, um, which seems to provide especially uh, high protection for the current variant. Um, we have to uh, push to increase the usage of masks where, where possible. Um, and I was the one that first pushed for that in Los Angeles and convinced the mayor and introduced a motion on my own to, to make that happen. And I think that helped control the pandemic to some degree in LA uh, before we actually had the vaccination as, as a tool. Um, so that's been a, a tough issue, uh, which, which I've tried hard to lead on. I also did a, a, a piece of legislation requiring employers to give half a day off to get the shot and recover and an additional day to recover after that if necessary. So the concerns about the symptoms and being sick for a day um, didn't scare anyone off that couldn't afford to, to lose that time. Um, 
I've been very involved for years in trying to fight homelessness. I helped to uh, create the, the PATH program, which is a well-known nonprofit that now uh, houses about 2,500 people about 20 years ago, um, before the problem grew as exponentially as it has. And my focus has been on something that's been different than most of the council and most elected officials, which is what can we do that doesn't involve building more housing and doesn't involve leasing more housing, but is, is, is more preventative in a way. Mm -hmm. So uh, I've been pushing for years and we finally adequately funded this year an eviction protection program so that if people are unjustly served with an eviction notice, if they don't have representation, they'll usually still get evicted. But if they have an attorney, uh, if they have a, a, a real case and it's not a, a justifiable eviction, they'll usually win. Right. So it's a lot cheaper to keep people from being kicked out of their homes than to you know, build a $700,000 HHH unit and provide services. Um, and it's also more humane and it's quicker. Um, and preferable. And preferable. So that's kind of been my angle. We also required a few units of affordable housing in a lot of large luxury buildings in the city, but then we didn't track them. So landlords might rent to somebody that needs it. They might rent to their nephew that doesn't show an income because they're going to college and they don't have a job. Um, they might just rent market rate because nobody's watching. So I pushed for years to get a database set up so we could track it, which we were originally told was impossible. But of course it's not, and we now have such a database. And uh, we're also trying to put together a list of people that actually need affordable housing or they could wind up on the street. So again, it's, it's a more preventative approach. And you know, I have several other ideas that I've been pushing for, and hopefully we'll focus on some of them because they all are quicker and cheaper and more humane. Um, and I think that should be the approach of the city. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you are listening to my interview with council member Paul Koretz, who is also a candidate for LA City Controller, which will be decided in 2022. It's such a daunting task. Um, you know, California has 50% of the, the unhoused population. And even if, ma if magically we have the budget to house everyone, uh, there will be others that will come. So it's really a national problem, and it's a, na I should say, national challenge to fix it. And I know that um, sometimes we, we want our council members, or assembly members, or state senators to just sort of, um, you know, snap and everything is, is taken care of, but it's, it is a very daunting task. I was going to ask you what some of the key challenges are in the city as we are, but I think you covered a lot of them. Uh, because you've been working on them for a long time, uh, you know, including the, uh, the homelessness and, uh, um, you know, and eviction and all of that. So I'm going to transition to um, your, sort of your next, 
uh, your next step in public service, um, you're a candidate to become a, a city controller for Los Angeles. Yes. And um, I think some people don't know what a city controller does. So before we get into specifics, if you would just sort of give us a little bit of a, an explanation of what a city controller does. Well, I think the key things, there are other things that the department does, but the elected city controller, uh, I think really focuses in a few areas. Um, I think the primary one is finding efficiencies and rooting out waste and finding ways to save the city money so that we can, we can spend those on programs that we actually need rather than things that are, are steps that don't do anything for anyone. Um, and an example of that, uh, years ago, uh, Wendy Gruel and I uh, pushed through a change in, in how bills were paid because the city usually paid its bills early because it used to pay them late and get uh, assessed penalties. So it started paying them early and they lost money on the float of money. So we decided that uh, we would pay bills exactly on time. I mean, we're in the computer age, we can do that. And just making that minor change, right. I think probably saves, I think we thought a million dollars, a little over a million dollars. Now, in a big city budget, a million dollars isn't much, but you save a few million here and a few million there, and it suddenly becomes real money, right. as they say. And some of the ideas out there can save a lot more than a million dollars. But that's the kind of thing. It, it, it doesn't do anyone any good to be paying the bills at the wrong time. Or nobody's losing anything, um, except we found a way to save money. Right. So there, there are dozens and dozens of ideas like that. And so that's one piece. Um, the controller does policy audits. So the controller can look at departments and how well they're functioning and which functions are, are being performed better, which are problematic and they might make some suggestions um, and also look at programs. So we probably have 20 different homeless programs. So I don't think anyone's really taken a look and compared them and said, all right, this is working, this is getting this many people into, into housing, uh, this is helping us build more housing, this one is not getting us anywhere. So that's the type of thing that uh, uh, the controller does. And the third important function, which has really been advanced dramatically by our current controller, Ron Galperin, is making information accessible. So a lot of our financial information is accessible on the controller's dashboard, and you can configure it and get different, different kinds of information and uh, create graphs and different things from it. So doing that and, and advancing that is also an important uh, function. I would say I have a, a little bit of a vision for that, but I think the first two are the areas that I bring more to it. And the reason I decided to run is really when I first got elected in 2009, we were in a huge recession. And that we were talking about laying off four to 5,000 people. And I said, I'm, I'm a new council member, but I'm not gonna show up and let all these people be laid off. Right. So I, I really did lead the effort to fight the layoffs. Um, 
but part of the way we did it was trying to find efficiencies so we would have more money that we weren't wasting and we could apply to city services and not have to lay people off. And some of those were implemented when we needed to. Some of them turned out to take years longer, so long past the crisis. Um, I was pretty stubborn and I kept working on them. And some of them are even being implemented right now, 12 and a half years later. So mm -hmm. it's, it's sort of a natural progression. I've done it, it's almost been a hobby of mine on council. You know, how do we push these ideas through? How do we talk our colleagues into it um, and make them see the, the value and make department heads see the value? And you know, it's, it's, it's something I'd like to continue doing and would be my main focus as, uh, as controller. And you, you answered what was going to be my next question, which is, you know, you've been a beloved council member. Why are you putting yourself in this uh, super high pressure. I mean, you already have a lot of high pressure on you as a council member, but going up to the next level, but then you answered that and, and that you, uh, you've already been doing this and you've had all these ideas and some of them you've passed and uh, uh, you and It's can... sort of the less emotional, less visible side of things. Right. And I'm not someone that really likes being visible and likes the glory and right. likes to go, and go to a lot of ceremonial events. This is a job where you really can just dig in and do the work. Right. And it's not a sexy job. You don't see other elected officials uh, you know, trying to elbow me out of the way because right. it's, it's not very glamorous, but it's something that can do a, a tremendous amount of good for the city. Yeah, which is, which uh, considering all the changes we definitely need uh, all hands, uh, all hands, kind of an approach to uh, Los Angeles's challenges. Uh, there's also the mayoral race and all of that. Uh, if uh, if people want to learn more about your um, your city controller race and how to get information and maybe contribute, etc., where they can, where can they go? Well, we have a, a website. It's not fully developed yet, but it's, it's got some things on it, um, and it's caretsforla.com. Caretsforla.com. Yes, and that for is spelled out, that's sometimes confusing, so caretsforla.com. Okay. Gotcha, okay, caretz, F-O-R-L-A.com. Okay, thank yeah. you for that. So I wanna segue to um, your background. You are a, a big educator and, and a uh, an advocate for um, Holocaust studies, Armenian genocide studies. You have been a great friend and a supporter of the Armenian community, some of whom are in your district. Uh, and I, I'm sure that you've sort of gone through the, the last few years, highs and the lows that has to do with the Armenian American community. Um, you know, Los Angeles had recognized the Armenian Genocide a uh, long time ago, as had the state of California, but of course, earlier this year, um, uh, President Biden did. Um, but of Which course- Which is a, 
exciting and kind of a surprise after all these years. That was great. Yes, 106 years. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you are listening to my interview with council member Paul Koretz, who is also a candidate for LA City Controller, which will be decided in 2022. Of course, last year we, we witnessed this uh, with this uh, genocidal assault on, on the Armenians of Artsakh, um, as it's known to some people in the Garnagarabagh, by nations of Azerbaijan and Turkey. Uh, and we, it's almost like having PTSD, we're back to sort of um, re, sort of re-witnessing what our great-grandparents witnessed perhaps. What is your general perspective on what happened uh, and uh, what do you think about it? Well, it, it was just inexcusable and unnecessary for this whole conflict to have happened. But I'm thoroughly disgusted about the way that it happened. It's almost inconceivable to me that in, in the modern era that we would have this kind of warfare where People were cutting the ears off people as trophies and skinning them alive and doing things that, that you just wouldn't believe could be possible. And, uh, you know, it's, it's hard. And it's, it's hard being Jewish and watching that because, I mean, we, we all say never again, but it doesn't mean just never again for the Jews. We don't want to see a genocide happen and especially an attempt to repeat a genocide that was so difficult to get recognized and has never been recognized by the perpetrators uh, and now are really taking that same step in Artsakh. I mean, it's, I, I talked to Paul Krikorian about it and it, it's so painful for him, but especially because he'd been to Artsakh, which I had never been to, and uh, he saw a park that he had seen uh, before this conflict and you know, so much money and effort and community pride and now it was just taken over. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's been an issue that I've been focused on in the Armenian genocide for many years since I went to college and uh, first inadvertently took a class in Turkish history from someone who turned out to be a genocide denier. And that outraged me once I understood uh, what was happening, and I've been an advocate uh, ever since. And I did legislation uh, about 20 years ago in, in the State Assembly to create uh, Holocaust and Armenian genocide and other genocide uh, teacher training. Um, I think at the time we were in the middle of a fiscal crisis, so there wasn't money put into it, and, and uh, I don't think it had the impact that, right. that I wanted, except I got no one, not a single person complained about teacher training for the Holocaust, but I got tens of thousands of calls and emails from Turks saying, how dare you teach this? This genocide never happened. I couldn't believe it. I even had uh, 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 an email from a friend of my father's, um, and he had he died uh, over 40 years ago, so that was a long time ago. And um, 
He said, your father would have never done this. And, uh, you know, he must be turning over in his grave. And I don't remember what I sent back to him, but essentially it would be, you son of a bitch, my father would be so proud. And you can't fool me. Was, was your dad's friend Turkish? Um, I suspect he was, but I didn't know people as, you know, their nationalities. I just knew them as, as people he'd yeah. worked with and become friends with. It's unfortunate that, uh, it's, uh, that it's still a necessity to educate the world about genocides. I mean, Armenian genocide is not the only one. Uh, 20th century, after Armenians, it was the Holocaust, and after Holocaust was Rwanda and Chile and, and Cambodia and uh, Darfur and, and which, on and Which on. I, I, did a, I did legislation at the state level to uh, divest from, from the Sudan while, while all, all of the genocide in Darfur was yeah. happening. Um, the, the thing that makes me the most distressed is I feel a kinship with the Armenian community, especially as a, as a Jew and the fact that we went through the two great holocausts in world history. And it's difficult because I don't think most Jews know the history of the Armenian relationship with Turkey and with Azerbaijan. And I think Israel sold Azerbaijan some, uh, some weapons, not for this conflict specifically. But I think there's always been a good relationship because Azerbaijan has treated its Jewish population uh, more kindly than any other Muslim country. So they view that as a positive, um, but they don't see the connection that they're also, you know, supporting the Turks and uh, engaging in genocidal activities on their own. So, yeah, and those, those um, drones that were sold uh, to Azerbaijan were deal breakers in, in, this, in this event, unfortunately. Um, uh, but, you know, more importantly, I think um, your support has been very meaningful. Um, and that's probably the area where I've perhaps been the most impactful because I've communicated with Israel and they know I'm a, you know, very out there supporter of Israel. Right. And, and it, it was heard so I know they paid attention. Now, whether, whether it changed anything or not, I don't know. But That's important. But they need to know that there are Jews in, in American government places that support, you know, support the Armenian people and support... Yeah, the, many. There, there are so many um, Jewish people that have, um, from uh, Ambassador Morgenthau, the first major advocate and activist for the Armenian community trying to stop genocide to Franz Werfel, who, um, uh, uh, Franz Werfel, who wrote the famous book 40 Days of Musadar about genocide, who was a, a Dutch Jew, to Raphael Lemkin, who was a Polish Jew, who coined the term genocide, uh, mm -hmm. partly uh, due to the Armenian genocide, to um, Steven Spielberg, uh, including the Armenian Genocide as part of the Shoah Foundation, mm -hmm. and on and on and on. So, uh, uh, unfortunately, I think it was easier with the Jewish population because Holocaust survivors were younger at the time. So, 
there were more of them, it was probably harder to capture uh, uh, the actual stories from the actual people that lived oh, through it. Sure. But, but they were sure. able to do that to some degree, which is great. I, I actually wrote a, uh, an editorial a few years ago. I titled it Jews, colon, Armenians, Other Cousins. And uh, I talked about how uh, the Greeks are always considered cousins to the Armenians because uh, of our shared trauma with the Turkish. And the French are considered cousins because of France's unwavering support for the Armenians and how they came to our rescue during the genocide at Musadagh. Uh, and then I go into uh, the kinship of, of the Jewish community worldwide with uh, with the Armenians. I actually went to the, the Holocaust Memorial in Armenia when I was there in May. I went there a couple of times this year. Um, so yes, your, your support uh, is, is super important. And, uh, um, and for Artsakh too, is people's right to self-determination. I'm glad that uh, you know, Los Angeles has recognized the independent Republic of Artsakh uh, I don't honestly know how, who and how that was voted. I mean, I know it was about seven or eight years ago, but I suspect that from what you've said, you recognize Artsakh, you, you support Artsakh and, and the people. And I still haven't been there, so I, I know there's a, a trip planned at some point, uh, and uh, when that happens, I'll, I'll join it. I think that would be a special thing. I went there as an adult for the first time, not to Artsakh, Armenia, in 2018, and I fell in love. I'd only been there when I was three once. Mm -hmm. So, a council member, before we go, is there anything uh, you'd like to add to? Ah, I'm trying to think of the big issues we faced in LA. I, I might add public safety to that. Mm -hmm. And that's been an issue that's had some controversy. You know, after you know, George Floyd's terrible death, uh, I think uh, every police department in every city you know, engaged in some introspection about uh, uh, you know, what the next step is. Those listening can go to uh, Coretz for LA, that's Coretz, F-O-R-L-A.com uh, to find out about your, um, your uh, objectives, your initiatives to be City of Los Angeles's controller and to get more information and contribute and volunteer and to be a part of it. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you so much really for having me. really appreciate it. That was my interview with Councilmember Paul Koretz, who is also a candidate for LA City Controller, being 2022 election. Uh, I interviewed Councilmember Koretz for my documentary feature film, Motherland, and I wanted to share part of that interview with you because Councilmember Koretz has been uh, such a champion of very progressive causes uh, on, on many fronts for the longest time. I've definitely been a fan and I'm very grateful for this interview and I hope to chat with you again soon, uh, council member, or perhaps at the time it would be uh, LA City Controller. Before we go, I'd like to thank my producer, Ricky Herrera, without whom this show would not be possible, and KPFK, the station that brings you unfiltered and commercial-free news, opinion, and hopefully some inspiration. Thank you for joining me today on The Blunt Post with Vic. Tune in next Monday at 6 a.m. for another episode. 
For more information, please visit thebluntpost.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Vic Jarami, at V-I-C-G-E-R-A-M-I. Thank you. The Blunt Post with Vic.